following audio is from Redeemer Anglican Church in Richmond, Virginia. More information about Redeemer is available online at RedeemerRVA.org. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the, wor- the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it is usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because of the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flames of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth man is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, Come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no God, other God, who is able to rescue in this way. The word of the Lord. Friends, let's stand for the reading of the gospel. 
The gospel reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 to 14. That's on page 834 of your pew Bibles. And just as a reminder, uh, if you don't own a Bible, you are welcome to take one of these black uh, Bibles that are in the rows in front of you as a gift from us. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. The Gospel of the Lord. Amen. Let's be seated. Well, once more, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. Uh, If we have not met and you are new to Redeemer, welcome. So glad that you're here. Um, My name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve as a pastor here. And by way of orientation, uh, I want you to know that we as a church are in the season of ordinary time. And I know that the church calendar is familiar to some of you and probably new and strange to to plenty of you. Uh, But here's what you need to know. Uh, During this season of the year, we are seeking to learn and grow together in our faithfulness as followers of Jesus in the simple, basic, mundane, everyday places in life. And to that end, this fall, we have put together a sermon series on the Old Testament book of Daniel that we are calling Faithful Presence in the City. And we're a couple installments in. We're going to look at chapter three today. Before we begin, let me say a prayer, though. Heavenly Father, right now, I pray that you would send your spirit to us to open up our minds and our hearts and even our bodies to your word so that we might be changed, so that we might live faithfully here in the city of Richmond in our time. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this is a little bit embarrassing, but uh, whenever you open up uh, a streaming platform like Netflix or something like that, uh, it automatically prompts you with certain shows or movies that it thinks you will like to watch based on your past like viewing history. And for whatever reason, there is something evidently about me uh, that causes Netflix to always prompt me to watch Seinfeld. Um, I don't know why this is, uh, but it's always the first one up right there. And so the other night, Uh, I've got a little bit of extra time. The kids are already in bed asleep. And so I pull it up and I start watching an episode and it it turns out to be one of my favorite ones. And I realize at this point, I'm making a cultural reference point about the TV show Seinfeld that some of you get and it's very dear to you and you love it. And others of you have no idea what I'm talking about. And that's okay because some of us are educated, cultural, sophisticated people and others of us are like uncultured Philistines. And that's okay. Um, We're a diverse congregation. It's good that we're all together. So... I'm watching this episode of Seinfeld, and uh, here's the scene. There's this absolutely absurd character called Kramer uh, who has signed up to do a charity walk. And when he arrives at the registration table to sign in, the volunteer hands him a ribbon to pin onto the the lapel of his shirt. And chaos ensues. Uh, The volunteer says, you're checked in. Here's your ribbon. And Kramer says, ah, no thanks. And the volunteer says, you don't want to wear the ribbon? And Kramer says, no. And the volunteer says, but you have to wear the ribbon. And Kramer says, I have to? And the volunteer says, yes. And he says, ah, see, that's why I don't want to. And the volunteer says, but everyone wears the ribbon. You must wear the ribbon. And Kramer says, you know who you are? You're a ribbon bully. 
And the volunteer then like chases after him. And eventually the scene ends with Kramer getting pulled into an alley by some people who are all wearing ribbons who beat him up for not wearing the ribbon. And it's, of course, silly and ridiculous. And the peer pressure that Kramer is receiving is funny to us because it's strange and, uh, and absurd. But it's also relatable, which is part of why it's so funny. You see, you don't have to be a hard-nosed libertarian to see that there is this basic human tendency to fanatically push conformity, especially in matters of symbolism in the public. Like we all need to fit in and belong. And that pressure to kind of go along with things, to be a team player, not to rock the boat, um, and the threat of harm that you, if you don't, uh, that's called coercive force. That's called coercive pressure. The pressure to push people to, in their public life, conform to something and then threaten them if they refuse to. That's coercion. And all of us are at least somewhat familiar with this unpleasant thing called coercion. For most of us, it begins in elementary school when we realize that being different and not fitting in can actually invite physical pain. I don't know when you got in your first fight in elementary school. For me, it was fourth grade, okay? I made it till fourth grade without getting into a fight. After that, it's kind of been downhill. This kind of continues on in middle school for many of us. And middle school for a lot of people are like the worst years in life because middle school are those years where other kids are old enough um, to be cruel but young enough to not realize the damage they're inflicting, right? And then this kind of swells up through high school and college where the desire to fit in can be almost suffocating. And when you're an adult, it doesn't go away, does it? Every adult in the room knows this. This this pressure to conform does not go away. Rather, it just kind of matures, and the stakes get higher. And now the threat, if you do not conform to the desires of your boss or your peers, could mean things as drastic as the loss of your job or the canceling of your public image, or in some rare cases, actual physical violence. And some of us have felt coercive pressure for things as small as the clothes we wear or the language and the words that we choose uh, to speak, or something as big as the ideas or doctrines or beliefs that we, that we hold dear. And throughout much of church history, the people of God, did you know this, have been no strangers to coercive force. Um, we'll just hit a couple high water marks as we work our way back through church history. But in 2015, you've got the 21 Coptic martyrs in Libya who were executed for their faith. Some of you saw this on the news. In 1980, you've got Oscar Romero. In 1968, you've got Martin Luther King Jr. In 1945, you've got Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In 1555, you've got the Oxford martyrs of the English Reformation. In 1415, you've got Jan Hus. In the sixth century, you've got Boethius. And then after that, you're all the way back into biblical times. You've got Stephen, the very first martyr in the New Testament in the Christian church. And this theme, this pressure to uh, conform and the coercive threat of violence if you do not, that's actually a theme that runs its way through the Bible as well. Did you know that? The story of the Bible begins with humanity created for not coercive relationships, but harmonious relationships, where human beings are created to live at peace, not only vertically with God, but also horizontally with each other. But then sin enters the picture in Genesis chapter 3. The world is fractured and coercive relationships become the norm. We see this in the great empires through the Old and New Testament, in Egypt and Jericho, the Philistines, the Assyrians, Daniel chapter 3, Babylon, and then also in the New Testament in Rome. We even see this kind of coercive threat in the nation of Israel as 
things start with such hope and promise for the nation of Israel, but then eventually things go off the rails. The people of Israel ignore God, society begins to break down, and even you have kings of Israel using coercive force against their own people. And then Jesus arrives on the scene, the leader who refuses to use coercion, who never uses coercive force. And the new kingdom, the new empire, so to speak, that Jesus inaugurates is a kingdom in which coercion has no place. And the story of the Bible actually culminates and ends with the new creation, the new kingdom of God being fully established, and it's a return to harmony. Shalom is restored. That's the story of the Bible. Now, in that story, we have our text this morning from Daniel chapter 3. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the story which is, after all, about refusing coercion. That's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. And we're going to see that in order to refuse coercion here in our time and in the city of Richmond, you need two things. You need, first, a faith that is not private. And second, a faith that is not transactional. Okay? If you're the kind of person that takes notes, you can jot these down. A faith that is not private and a faith that is not transactional. Um, You might find it helpful to have the text in front of you as we work our way through it. So if you have the ability, take out the Bible again, open back up to Daniel chapter 3. Let me draw your attention to a few verses. Uh, First, we'll kind of set the scene. So the story of the book of Daniel uh, takes place in a time in the history of the people of God in the Old Testament when the people of Judah, um, and specifically the capital city of Jerusalem, have been conquered by the Babylonian Empire, and the elite upper class has been exported, exiled to the capital city of Babylon to be re-educated so that they can culturally assimilate into Babylonian life and society. And so uh, the Judean army lost the war. A lot of them died. But the Judean upper class, which includes Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are all now living in Babylon. They've gone through, in a sense, Babylon University. They've culturally assimilated into Babylonian culture while retaining their faith in God. And here things come to a head where King Nebuchadnezzar is looking for a way to unite the Babylonian empire. And if you've ever heard this story before, maybe you grew up in church, maybe you've heard a sermon on this in the past, you might have heard this like pitched to you as a moment where King Nebuchadnezzar is basically on this giant like ego trip to end all ego trips, where he's asking his entire empire to bow down and worship a giant golden statue of himself. That's not really what's happening. It's kind, there's, there's a, I'm not saying there's no ego at play here. Certainly, King Nebuchadnezzar has an ego problem. Um, But there's more going on. And actually, Nebuchadnezzar is a pretty sophisticated emperor. What he's doing is he is attempting to find a way to unite his pluralistic, diverse empire. You see, and I know that you know this from your own empire-building days, right? Um, You conquer lots... That's a joke. You conquer lots of people... And they're not all the same. You need to find a way to make your empire united. So what do you do? What Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do is say, okay, look, local folks, keep your local religion. Keep believing in whatever God or gods you like. Keep all your local culture as long as they are subservient to the state religion of Babylon. And what we're going to do is we're going to have a unity service. This is a a Babylonian empire unity service. We're going to set up a big statue. When the music plays, all the fanfare happens, everyone's going to bow down. And it's going to be a sign that top of the heap is Babylon and all our other local cultures are underneath. In other words, you can have whatever private faith you like. 
as long as you are publicly on board with the empire. The cultural pressure point for us here in our moment today is this. You can believe whatever you like so long as you keep it to yourself and do not believe that it is true for everyone. Today's society doesn't largely care what you believe in your heart. Nobody cares. As long as you are publicly on board with the current agendas of our culture and society. And I think what's so interesting about this story, at least the way it begins, is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these these three Jewish exiles, they are not going out to pick a fight. And so some of you might have heard sermons before that basically pitch the whole thing this way, that these three men are like taking a stand. And I think you're supposed to pound your fist when you say that, right? They're taking a stand. And when you see this scene depicted in Christian art, what you see is like a whole plane full of people that are all bowing down in front of a giant statue. And then three little guys who are standing up like grasshoppers in the middle of the whole thing, right? That is probably not what happened. Far more likely is that these three men just didn't attend. They just weren't participating. Because, and if the rest of the book of Daniel is any evidence for us, and I think it is and it should be, that these Judean exiles are not going to pick a fight. They're not taking a stand culturally. This is not a culture war moment. These are three guys who are attempting to mind their own business who are attempting to be left alone and simply not participate in this Babylonian Empire unity service. And instead, conflict goes and finds them. Somebody notices they're conspicuously absent. Conflict finds them, and they are hauled in front of the king. Now, as we think about what it's like for us to contemplate this in our own time, the invitation that is before us is to have a faith that is just as much public as it is private. And as soon as we say that, there's, there's kind of this dynamic that all of us, if we're going to be self-aware human beings, and that would be a good thing, right? That's desirable. There's something that we're going to have to ask ourselves. And this question is not really coming from me. It's coming from a few hundred years ago from someone named William Wilberforce. And he has this to say. Some might say that one's faith is a private matter and should not be spoken of so publicly. They might assert this in public, but what do they really think in their hearts? The fact is, those who say such things usually don't have a concern for the faith in the privacy of their interior lives. In other words, if you and I are the kind of people who struggle to have the courage to live publicly and openly as followers of Jesus— then it bears asking the question, do we actually have a private faith? In other words, the kind of people who most struggle to live publicly as a Christian are the very same people who also struggle to live privately as a Christian. If you do not have the courage to make your faith public, it bears asking, do you truly have a private faith? Now, there are all kinds of reasons why you and I might be unwilling, or perhaps if we really admitted it quietly, even a bit afraid to live publicly as a follower of Jesus. What could be more distasteful in our current cultural moment? There are real things at stake, and I know that you know this. It's true whether you're in middle school or high school or college or in grad school or in the workplace or maybe even amongst your extended family. There are real risks to be taken, 
and there are real consequences, maybe even coercive pressures that might be leveraged against you if it were to become known publicly that you are a follower of Jesus, and maybe not just a casual Christian, but actually someone who is sincerely committed to it. And by the way, I know that not everybody in the room is a Christian, and that's okay. If you're not, we're really glad you're here, truly. But we would like you and invite you to listen in on this internal dialogue and conversation we're having together as a church this morning about what it means to live publicly in our faith. You can refuse coercion when your faith is not private, but that's actually not enough. If you could think about asking this question about public versus private faith as maybe hitting the outer rind, the outer skin of your life, are you following Jesus publicly even if you have a private faith? And then we took it one step deeper and we asked, well, if you struggle to live publicly as a Christian, maybe it's because the private faith isn't really there or maybe it's pretty weak. That's moving things down a level. Let's move one level down further and let's get to the very heart of things, which is, is your faith transactional? You see, in order to refuse coercion, you have to not only have a public faith, you have to have a faith that is not transactional. Here's what I mean. Looking back at the text, verses 16 through 18, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I think these three men and their response are so very calm and cool and collected. Just think of all the kinds of things they could have said, right? I mean, they they could have immediately jumped to explain and defend that, well, because they were Israelites, that it really wasn't appropriate for them to bow down to a golden image. After all, that would break uh, one of the Ten Commandments. Um, They could have tried to explain that they really cared about him. They were were for him, King Nebuchadnezzar. He just needed to appreciate the nuance of the city, right? They didn't go into any of that. They just simply let it stand. We have no need to answer you on this matter. They don't need to explain or defend themselves. And then there's this triplicate answer they give. Very interesting. They say, basically, God can deliver us. We believe God will deliver us. And then third, but if not, we're still going with God. And that turn there at the end, I think, is so fascinating. It reveals something about the kind of relationship these three men have with their God. And it's so very different from the kind of relationship that many of us have with God. One theologian and commentator reflecting on these particular verses has this to say. These are the crucial words in their reply to the king, and they should not be taken as a sudden collapse into doubt and uncertainty. This is not a loss of faith or preparing for the worst or a just-in-case. Rather, it is a continuing affirmation of their complete faith in God while still leaving God his freedom to do as God pleases. This was the nature of Israelite faith in the power and sovereign wisdom of Yahweh. They fully expected a miracle, but they would serve God without one. They declare total faith in God's ability, along with total acceptance of God's freedom. In other words, if we could summarize it in one sentence, these guys don't follow God because he blesses them. God's blessing is not a prerequisite for their loyalty to God. There's a second cultural pressure point here. The first one was you can believe whatever you like so long as you keep it to yourself and don't believe it's true for everybody else. The second cultural pressure point is 
the belief that all relationships, including our relationship with God, are fundamentally transactional. Now, what do we mean by relationships being transactional? Well, we mean simply that relationships operate on the, on the principle of trade. Each party in the relationship is getting something out of the deal. And in this view, it applies to everything. It applies to the relationship between bosses and employees, between parents and children, between spouses that are married, between people that are in a dating relationship, between friends, uh, even just a basic friendship, between the relationship people have with their churches, and even the kind of spiritual relationship people have with their God. The operating principle goes something like this. The success and health of any relationship is a function of the exchange of value between the parties. So you might use your imaginations and think about what would relationships look like if they really did function on this principle of trade? If all relationships were transactional, what would life feel like? Well, in our marriages, it would feel like this. Our marriage is a mutually agreed upon arrangement whereby we each get what we want and need from each other. And if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, I have the right to terminate the relationship. And I realize as I say that, that might be uniquely painful for some of us to hear because that actually feels a lot like the relationship that either you used to be in or or maybe the one that you're in right now. It's begun to feel very transactional and that's actually created a lot of angst and suffering and pain in your relationship. If you have a relationship with your parents, it looks like this. I will keep my parents, if you're the kid, I will keep my parents in my life so long as it seems to be of benefit to me. But I will cut my parents out of my life if I don't get what I want from them. I read an article the other day that stated that somewhere between 30 and 40% of adults today in the United States are voluntarily estranged from their parents, meaning they have opted to cut their parents out of their life because they don't want them around. (laughs) They're annoying or they're frustrating or they're, quote, toxic It's a transactional relationship. What about in our dating or in our sex lives? The question each person in the couple is asking is, what am I bringing to the table and what are you bringing to the table? And if what we each bring to the table is relatively even, we have a relationship. But if it begins to become uneven, if one person is really bringing a lot more to the relationship than the other, then we're probably going to break up because it's not fair anymore. And fair has something to do with trade, which is a transaction, right? In our relationships, it sounds like this. I'll be there for you as long as you're there for me. And if you're ever not there for me, then I'm not going to be there for you anymore. We're done. In church, ah, it applies to church. It looks like this. I attend, I give, I volunteer, and in return, I expect from my church enjoyment, fulfillment, friendship, richness of life in return, that elusive thing called community that we're all looking for. And if I don't get it, then my relationship with my church is over. With God, it looks like this. I I put in, I have my own inputs and then God has his inputs. I put in faith and prayer and obedience, stuff like that. And God puts in blessings and help and hopefully the occasional good spiritual feeling. And if God stops putting in his part, then I'm going to stop putting in my part. And this takes all manner of shapes. Uh, When we are 
either sick or in pain or something is happening, some crisis in life is hit, and you are praying to God and asking for help, what you end up thinking is, I need to put in enough faith into this prayer, into this relationship with God. And if I put in enough, then God is going to respond with a correlating amount of help and assistance in my life. The greater my faith, the greater my help from God, right? This is familiar, yes? And then it doesn't work that way. And so you're left with this feeling where you're like, I, I gave my life to God and then God gave me cancer. So why the heck am I following God? Or I wanted a more fulfilled life. I believe in God because it makes my life more fulfilling. I gave my life to God, but, the, but then I felt empty and alone. I didn't feel God's presence. Why did I give my life to God if I'm not even going to feel his presence? You know who didn't feel God's presence? Uh, Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa in her young woman years gave her life to God and went off to serve God for the rest of her life as a nun in Calcutta. And one of the things that came to light in the years after her death was uh, her journal entries were made public. And everybody realized that very shortly after Mother Teresa committed and devoted her life to God, she stopped feeling God's presence entirely. And what life was like for her in the following decades, decades, was this experience of the absence of God and this deep and profound sense of loneliness and emptiness. And so one of the things that happened in response to that was so many Christians, and especially American Christians, had this like giant outcry where they thought, well, why on earth was Mother, why did she stick with it? Why was Mother Teresa continuing to serve and follow God if she wasn't getting anything out of it? She's doing all the input. Why isn't God putting in his part? To take this all the way to its logical conclusion, I believe in God because that way I don't go to hell. I put in my faith. He puts in salvation. We have a fair trade, a fair exchange. And it leaves us asking questions like, will you trust God when he says no to you? Or will you follow Jesus if it makes your life harder instead of making your life easier? Are you the kind of person who could, in the same words of these men in this story, say things like, but if not, I will still be loyal? And the reality for most of us is that we are all too often transactional in our relationships with each other and with the church and with God. And some of you might be thinking at this point, like, okay, idealistic preacher man, like, would you please get real realistic? Is there really any other way to live? Aren't you just describing how the world works? And you might be thinking, if my faith were public and not private, and if my faith were not transactional but loyal, then that is going to lead let's be honest, to a lot of suffering in my life. And you're not wrong. We better keep reading. Back to the text. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and then he orders some guys from his army to bind these three men, to throw them into the fire, fully clothed, and the fire is heated so hot that even the guys that are holding these three men are burned up and incinerated. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go into the fire. You're not wrong. A public and loyal faith will inevitably lead to the fire. It'll lead to suffering. And it would be appropriate and probably emotionally intelligent at this moment for all of us to simply admit even to ourselves, if we can't admit it to each other, our fear of suffering. The reason why this story 
is not a children's story is because three guys get thrown in a fire. Why on earth are we doing this in Sunday school with our kids? This is a grown-up story, y'all. Suffering is a given for followers of Jesus. One of the promises that Jesus makes to his disciples and vicariously through them to us who are his disciples as well is, in this world you will have trouble. And I think Richmonders have a harder time with this than a lot of other people in a lot of other places in the world because the king of Richmond is comfort. And it is all too easy living here in this city to allow your Christian faith, if you have one, to serve your true God, which is your own comfort. And when your faith stops serving the God of comfort, it will be easy and quick to betray the faith in order to maintain your loyalty to your real God. And so one other question that we are left with is how on earth are we going to deal with this problem? Because the text calls us to a public and loyal faith, which will, if we are honest, inevitably lead to suffering, which we do not want. So what are you going to do? We better keep reading. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. And he answered, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and their appearance is of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Y'all, we're going to have to get theological for a moment. That phrase, son of the gods, is a phrase that runs its course through the story of Scripture, and it applies specifically to the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God, who is Jesus. So what we see here in the story is the presence in the fire with these three men of a pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus is with them in the flames. There's an author who wrote something that I read a while ago, and I didn't understand it at first. He wrote, The characteristic place to find a Christian is amongst his very enemies, and the first place to look for Christ is in hell. Now, I didn't get that at first because I was taking it theologically, but I think it's more appropriate to receive it experientially, meaning the place that Christians make their life is amongst people who don't agree with them, with their enemies. And the very place to find Jesus, if you're looking for him, is with his followers who are living in the midst of their enemies who are suffering. That is the place you find Christ. Jesus is both public and loyal in his relationship to you. Jesus is loyal to you when you are not loyal to him. And Jesus' offer to you is so very different from all the other transactional relationships in this world. What does Jesus say to you? Jesus says, I give you my life for yours. Jesus says, I'll give you everything. I'll give you my blood. I'll give you my breath. I'll give you my spirit. And after Jesus died on the cross, his body was entombed in a cave and his spirit descended to Hades or Sheol, this place described throughout the story of the Bible with images of fire and torment. In other words, listen, Jesus goes to hell for you. What on earth does he have to get out of that relationship? What does Jesus get out of his relationship with you? Nothing. He just loves you. And so he gives all of himself. And you may have never experienced unconditional love anywhere else in life. Maybe, this is true for a lot of us, maybe all of your other relationships up until this point in your life have really been transactional. 
Let's admit it. But here Jesus offers you something that you actually can't get anywhere else, a truly and authentically unconditional love where he gets nothing out of the deal and you get everything. The promise of Jesus to you from Daniel chapter 3 is not that he will deliver you from suffering and harm and pain, but rather that he will be present with you in the furnace, in the flames, and that your eternal future is actually defined by the story arc of this particular text, that he will be present with you, he actually goes into the suffering and into the death and into the hell for you, and he will draw you up out of it and rescue you, that your eternal future is actually one of rescue and salvation because of his unconditional love for you. The unconditional loving presence of Jesus then gives you, if you are willing to receive it and accept it, the strength to live your life with him publicly in genuine love and loyalty for him. And when you know this kind of love, you know what you don't have to do? You don't have to agonize over whether or not to be known publicly as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus. You know why? Because there is absolutely nothing anybody can do to threaten you or to entice you away from Jesus. No carrot is appealing enough and no stick is frightening enough. They can offer you the world and you'll say, no thanks, I'd rather have Jesus. They can threaten you with pain and suffering and you'd say, I'll take it if it means I get to keep Jesus. And when a church, a community of people, not just individuals, but a church experiences this kind of unconditional love in Jesus, then a church can become a place where relationships are not transactional. This is part of our public witness in the city of Richmond. This place becomes a place where Forgiveness and mercy and grace flow like little rivulets through all the people, where people serve with no expectation or even desire to be served in return, where people give away their time and their calendars to one another freely, and where people give away their money with staggering generosity, and where new people visit, and they become astonished and perplexed and astounded by the ethos of these people who have been so transformed by the unconditional love of Jesus that they are living their faith publicly, loyally, generously, selflessly, and without fear. Richmond needs these kind of public Christians. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your unconditional love given to us in Jesus. I pray that right now in this very moment, you would give us the grace to receive it, and then in the days ahead, the grace to embody it. All this we pray in your name. Amen.